Go to Romans 9 in your Bibles. As you go there, um, if you didn't hear earlier, my name is Ross. I'm one of the pastors here, and we're glad you're here. Next week, we have Discover Bethel. So right after this service next week, if you've been hanging around Bethel, visiting, wanting to know a little more about what this church believes or why we do what we do, or you just want to meet some of the pastors and the leadership, if you're contemplating, hey, this may be my church home, this is a great place for you to come and to get to know um, this church a little bit better, get a chance to look under the hood, and we'd love for you to join us. We'll provide you lunch and take care of your kids and, and get you out of here in a reasonable time. We'd love for you to be here. Because it is Super Bowl Sunday, so we're not going to conflict with that in any way. We might not have the coolest Super Bowl food, but we'll, it'll be fun. It'll be a lot of fun. Um, all right, Romans 9. Oh. If you're visiting with us today, let me just say, you pick the most interesting Sunday in the whole world to come here because you're going to get to watch me as the preacher endure what Paul, I think, means to humble preachers throughout the centuries. So however good a preacher might feel coming out of Romans 8, Paul assures that they crash and burn in Death Valley of Romans 9. And I say all that to say this because Romans 9 is, I, I believe, it's the hardest chapter in all the Bible. Not so much because we, we can't understand what it means. I think Paul's fairly straightforward in most of everything he says. It's just really hard to say, wow, I... That's hard to believe. That's hard to take. That's, it, it offends all my sensibilities. And the fact that we are Americans makes it that much worse. Because we, we find in this chapter a God who is independent from us. A God who has the freedom to be free. He does not answer to us, is not accountable to us in any way. And so when we read what Paul writes about the sovereignty of God, it, it messes with us. It, it unsettles us. And so let me try to put into context what that unsettling is before we actually get all unsettled, okay? And that is this. I liken it to repelling. Uh, repelling's fun, um, but it's dangerous stuff. I mean, you're repelling off of the side of a cliff. I've only done it a couple of times. I'm not an expert on it. Can't tell you all the, uh, you know, what the ropes are called and the harness is called. And, you know, I know you're supposed to say, you know, belay on or on belay or something. I can't remember which goes first, but I, I don't ever repel by myself. I've never done that. I've always had people around me that knew what was going on. But the, the deal is, no matter how safe it is, how secure the ropes are, how much you trust the guy that's leading you in it, you still have to come to that place where you take the first step and you step off of the cliff and you're, you're weightless, you know, you become this weightless body suspended by ropes. This is a pretty helpless feeling, but it's also thrilling. The crazies repel face down. So instead of looking up at the sky as you pray towards heaven that you don't fall, you now face, uh, you look down at the ground, picking out the spot that you 
potentially would crash into. This is what Paul is doing in some ways. Now, here's the things I know about repelling. Here's sort of my, sum up my two rules of repelling. One, you got to have a strong rope. Two, you got to have enough rope to get all the way to the bottom. Now, Romans 9, in some ways, is, is like repelling down a steep cliff of God's mystery. And this steep cliff of God's mystery takes us to the, to the bottomless pit, if you will, of his mercy, to which we can never get to the bottom of. So Paul takes us out on the rope. He takes us out on the cliff. He has us staring down into the mystery of God, the mind of God, which is bottomless. And so it's a thrilling passage, and it is by faith meant to draw us deeper into the love and the, and the knowledge of who God is, this, this God that saved us. It's meant to be a comfort to our souls as we glory and the majesty of God. But this passage in no way takes us to the bottom, plunges us to the depth of, the, of God's mystery. There, there is more to know about God than what he's revealed. And there's far more to know about God than what we're able to understand. In fact, the passage leaves us, in a sense, speechless. This whole section, Romans 9 through 11, Paul ends the section this way. He, he sort of shouts out after he's talked all about this grand mystery of God's sovereignty, and he cries out this way at the end of Romans 11, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable! Are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. For who's known the mind of the Lord, or who's been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. That's our response to Romans 9 and 10 and 11, and it's our response this morning as we consider what Paul says in Romans 9. So, that's where I'm going to be. I'm going to be in Romans 9. You, this is what I, you can do sometime. If you catch somebody in the first hour, some Sunday morning coming out as, you know, after you've slept in and you're coming in, um, I'm just kidding. Um, sort of. But anyways, think, think the first hour people because sometimes they endure a bad sermon so that hopefully you get a good sermon. All right? I left the first hour and thought, man, if I went and ran to my car and drove away, maybe nobody would notice. Let's see what we can do here. Romans 9, beginning in verse 1, here's what he says. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. So, Paul's saying, listen, I, what I'm about to say, I'm telling you the truth. This isn't sentimental. I'm not caught up in nostalgia. I, he, he's going to be very emotional, deeply emotional. But he's not saying, he said, look, this is truth in Christ. 
I, the witness is the Spirit. The Spirit's the witness to what I'm saying. I'm telling you the truth in this honest emotion. Look at verse 2. That I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. I feel deeply about this. There's a, there's a brokenness inside of me and I, I can't shake it. There's no amount of pride that comes to me personally as I preach these sacred truths about who God is. And, and he's saying this about his fellow Jews. So Paul was in a situation that when he went to preach, and by the way, Paul's the, 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 the apostle to the Gentiles, but every city he goes in, his first stop is the synagogue. He loves his fellow kinsmen. He loves his fellow Israelites, his fellow Jews. And yet, the uh, propaganda against Paul was that he was anti-Semitic, that he was anti-Jewish, because he was preaching a gospel that said, here's how God saves. He saves through his son Jesus, by grace, through faith, in Christ, and it's not through the law. It's not because of what you've done. What you do can't get you rightly related to God. It must be what God does through his son Jesus that rightly relates you to himself. But the Jewish people, they would have believed in his day. His fellow Jews would have believed, no, 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 Paul, here's the deal. All Israel's saved. We were given the law. We were given the promises. We were given all of these things. We're God's chosen people. We're in. And Paul says, it has nothing to do with who you're related to. Your, your DNA test is not what qualifies you for heaven. It is your relationship to the promise of God in his son Jesus. You are not saved by who you are. You are saved by what Jesus has done. And do you trust that or not? Now, Paul has labored throughout Romans to make that case. He started in Romans 3. So the, the, the righteousness of God, the righteousness that we need, that gets manifested apart from the law. It came through Jesus and in what Jesus did in dying for our sins. He became our righteousness. He says it in Romans 4. He makes the case. He says, Abraham wasn't saved by his works. He was counted righteous by faith. It has always been by faith. Romans 5, we have peace with God by faith. He goes beginning of Romans 7. What, what the law was unable to do because it was weakened by our human flesh. The law is not bad. Our inability to keep the law. We can never do that. God had to save us through his son Jesus. In fact, at the end of Romans Nine, which I don't think I have these up here, but just listen. He, he gives us the answer to the whole problem, the whole tension going on. He says, what shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is, 
a righteousness that is by faith. But Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching the law because no one succeeds in reaching it. And then he says, why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. And they've stumbled over the stumbling stone, which is Jesus. So Paul feels this anguish. He'll begin chapter 10 by saying, I want nothing more than for them to be saved. He's going to pour his heart out, his life out. He's going to feel the burden, the responsibility of their salvation. Even in the midst of this conversation about God's sovereignty. In fact, in verse 3, he says, if I could, what does he say? Um, for, I, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. What he means there is, I, if I could, I'd offer myself as a sacrifice for them, but I know that won't work because the only sacrifice that saves is the sacrifice of Jesus. But I feel the responsibility to do everything humanly possible to make sure they know who Jesus is, that they know God's love for them. All right. Then he rehearses the privileges of Israel in verses 4 and 5. And he says, I, this is who Israel is. They're the Israelites. To them belong the adoption. And in uh, Exodus 4.22, God says, Israel's my firstborn son. And he says, to the glory, the, the glory that dwelt with them, the covenants, the, the Abrahamic, the Davidic, the, the new covenant, uh, the giving of the law. They were given the law, Exodus 19, Deuteronomy chapter 5, the worship, the, the, the temple worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. You know, where God is, every time we hear about God in the Old Testament, he's the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And from their race, According to the flesh is the Christ, the Messiah, who is God. That through the line of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob came God himself in the flesh, came through that line. I'm not anti-Semitic. I'm not anti-Jewish. I'm pro-Jewish. I'm a Jew. Jesus is a Jew. That's what he's saying. Now I want you all to be saved. And so he's going to answer a couple of things that come up where they say in verse 6, well, it's not as though the Word of God has failed. And then he says for clarification, because he's already said this in Romans 2. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Listen, God's word hasn't failed. He looks around and surveys. There's so many Jews that have rejected the Messiah. There's so many of his fellow kinsmen that don't believe in Jesus. In fact, they scorn Jesus. They scorn Paul. But that doesn't mean God's word has failed. What it means is that not everybody that is from Israel is Israel. Not everybody that's from Abraham is from Abraham. Not everybody that is a physical descendant of God's chosen people is, in fact, a spiritual uh, descendant, a spiritually chosen person of Israel. 
That's what he's saying. You're not reconciled to God by who your father or grandfather or great-grandfather is. You're reconciled to God by faith in his son. This is Paul's argument. So he's going to give them three examples. He's going to say, okay, let's go to the matter of uh, Isaac and Ishmael, born of Abraham. And then we're going to talk about Jacob and Esau. And then ultimately, he's going to give us an illustration that's going to be a little hard to swallow about Pharaoh, okay? Look at um, the issue with Abraham in verse 7. And not all children of Abraham, because they are his offspring, meaning not all belong to Israel and not all are children of Abraham just because you share his DNA. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. So what he's saying is, look, uh, Abraham had two sons. Actually, I had more than two, but he, two were, that are in focus. There's Ishmael and there's Isaac. Do you remember this? In Genesis chapter 17, God comes and says, hey, listen, I'm promising you a son. And, and Abraham laughs. He says, oh, man, I'm way too old and... And my wife's too old. And, but, but how it works, you know, in case you didn't know God, how it works is somebody from my household can just become my heir. And God says, no. No. I'm promising you a son is going to come through Sarah. And you're going to call him Isaac. Well, ends up intervening Abraham for himself. Ends up with with Ishmael, God comes back and says, that's not what my plan was. My plan was that this was going to come through Sarah. This is Genesis 18. Sarah laughs. God says, why did you laugh? She says, well, I didn't laugh. Could have swore I heard you laugh, and I'm God. <laughs> There's a promise. And, and when God uses the term offspring... That goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. In the, in the garden, in the midst of sin, in the midst of judgment, he looks to the serpent and says, listen, you may think you have won the day, but I'm here to tell you there is an offspring that is going to come through Eve, and that offspring is going to crush your head. It's God's promise to redeem what has been ruined by sin. And so when he says offspring, sin going through Ishmael. God didn't hate Ishmael. He blessed Ishmael, blessed him. But the promise, what I'm going to do, what I am going to do by my sovereign decreed plan before the foundations of time, I am going to bring salvation through one. And Abraham, that's going to go through Isaac. And Isaac, let me tell you something. You're going to have, you're going to be the one father with one mother. There's going to be two kids in your womb, in her womb. And I'm going to make a choice between them. Look at what he says. This means, uh, verse 8, this is not, uh, this does not mean uh, that the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. See that? For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I'll return. Sarah will have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebecca, 
just in case you were out there and go, yeah, yeah, but we get the whole Ishmael Isaac thing. I mean, Ishmael came from Hagar. Oh, yeah, well, let me give you another example. And also Rebecca. Uh, when Rebecca had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born, they're still in the womb, and had done nothing, either good or bad. Now notice, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. When God calls, he creates. In Romans 4.17, as, as Paul is talking about Abraham back then, and Abraham's body's as good as dead, and Sarah's womb is barren, which means it's dead. In 4.17, he says, God calls into existence things that were not. When God calls, he creates you got Esau, you got Jacob, same father, same mother. But Esau will not have the same rights, will not be the recipient of the promise that Jacob will be. Why? So that God's purpose of election continues, so that it is not by works, but it is by him who calls. See what, see what Paul's doing there? Everything in me here wants to run to God's defense. You know? Wants me to run over to Hebrews where it says about Esau that he, uh, what does it say exactly? It says he, he was unholy for selling his birthright for a single meal. And so I want to go, see, that's why Esau wasn't chosen. Or, if you take them to be the nations. That's why the Edomites aren't in the promise. And then they later proved themselves that they wouldn't have been worthy of it anyway. But that doesn't really hold because Jacob's a sorry rat too. And the Israelites, you know, as Paul is going to recount towards the end here, they were given all these privileges. And, and yet... The northern kingdom's going to be, you know, just totally wiped out by Assyria. The southern kingdom, 140, 30 years later, Babylon's going to come and wipe them out. They're going to get drug and exile. It's not that they were, you know, exemplars of the faith. But they were chosen by God to be the recipients and through whom his promise would come. And the whole thing Paul's going to argue at the end is there's always been a remnant. Just because you're part of Israel, just because Abraham was your great-great-great-grandfather or Isaac or, or even Jacob, doesn't mean you're rightly related to God. It's not by the works of the law that you do. It is 
Do you believe? Do, do you, are you related to the promises of God by faith? And that God has always, always chosen those who would be his vessels of mercy. Not by anything they've done, but because he chose them. Now, got like your full attention, right? Here's what he says. He's going to answer, ask and answer a question that rises up when we hear this. Look at verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Wait a minute, Paul. What you're saying, that doesn't really sound fair. Are you saying that, that God isn't just? And Paul exclaims. You can hear Paul shouting at the top of his lungs, by no means am I saying that. Which may be helpful to distinguish two things real quick. One is, is justice. Is, is God just, Paul's going to say, he is absolutely just. As to the matter of fairness, is God fair? No, I never said that. God's not fair. God is just, but he's not fair. And I can tell you how you know he's not fair. Because for so many, God chooses to relate to you not according to his justice, but according to his mercy. In fact, that's what he's going to bring up in, in verse 15. Look at what he says. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. You're asking me about fairness? Here's what's fair. All of humanity, since Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden, have been sinful and rebellious. They've mocked my name. They've worshipped idols. Those I called to be priests, they became proud. Those whom I graced with my presence became idol worshipers. Justice demands, I wipe everyone out. But he's chosen those with whom he will relate to according to his mercy, to his compassion. Verse 16, so, it th so then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. See, here's the thing. God owes us nothing. But in mercy, sovereignly graces us. Here's the height of unfairness. You ready? 2 Corinthians 5.21. For he who knew no sin 
became sin. Jesus. So that we, we might become the righteousness of God. The height of unfairness is that God takes his only begotten son, his perfect son, his eternal son, sends him to earth through the womb of a a virgin Mary, taking on flesh and humanity, becoming one of us, growing up perfect, spotless, And being sent to die on a cross at which God will turn his back and Jesus will say, my God, my God, why have thou forsaken me? It's because he became our sin and died our death so that we could become all that he is. Justice, mercy, Well, verse 17, for Scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he who has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Now, you could go back to Exodus, and you could trace that beginning in Exodus 4 all the way to the end of the plagues, you have um, God hardening Pharaoh's heart, Pharaoh hardening his own heart. You're going to see God says, listen, I endure with patience the vessels of mercy. And there is this sense in which the way that hardening's used and the way that I think Paul's going to talk about it is it's letting Pharaoh go his own way. And, and if anything, what God does is he restrains the, 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 the treachery of Pharaoh long enough. You know, what God should have done is shown up and put him to death right then, but he doesn't. He patiently waits for him. He patiently endures him through the plagues. He patiently endures in such a way so that God's glory is magnified amongst the Israelites. But God does not cause Pharaoh to sin. He does not cause Pharaoh to be unbelieving. That's owing all to Pharaoh. He simply allows Pharaoh to do what he wants to do. He simply allows Pharaoh to go the way that he wants to go, which Paul's already said in Romans chapter 1. Romans 1 verse 24, he hands them over to their sin. Verse 19, you will say to me then, Now, here's going to be what's waged against Paul. So, this is how we know what he's talking about because of the questions that he asks and will answer. Paul, what you're talking about seems like fatalism. Look at what he says, verse 19. But you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? In other words, Paul, if this thing's rigged, which sounds like that's what you're saying, then why are we accountable? Well, I mean, why is there any fault that can be found in us? 
Who can resist something that God has willed? Well, let me begin by saying a few things before Paul will answer for himself. One, God never willed you to sin. God didn't will you to be a a rebel and shake your fist at him. You were born that way. That's how you naturally are. When we talk about free will or free agency, you know, I mean, what, what is our freedom in this? I would say that the Bible very much affirms uh, without any doubt that free agency, it is the power for you to decide according to your character. The power to decide according to your character. That's why we're not forced from the outside in making decisions. We decide according to our character. That's free agency. That's, that's free will. In the sense you could say, well, we all have this free will. We all are free agents. Our decisions are our own. They're not forced upon us. And we sense, we, we experience, we're making these decisions as we make them. We know they're ours. Because they're according to our character. But what the Bible also affirms is you in and of yourself, you can't change your character. You can't change who you are. It's what the Israelites have been trying to do with the law. Take the law, obey the law, change who I am. They find they cannot change who they are. All the law does is expose more and more of who they are. Something supernatural has to happen to you. God's Spirit has to come and transform you. You have to become a new creation, being born again. But God is not willing you to act according to the nature that you already have. It's not what He's saying. I do want you to notice this. Paul in, in, in 19 and 20 and 21 and 22 and 23, so I want you to see this so clearly. I want you to peer into the mystery of God with me for a second. One, Paul is going to answer the question of verse 19 with two questions. He's not going to answer it with a statement. He's going to answer it with a question. And then I want you to see a distinction he makes that we ought to be careful to hold. What shall, verse 19, what shall we say then? Why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? Verse 20, you're not going to like this answer. But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use?
in some ways, this is meant to shatter our pride. God is wholly, completely unaccountable to me. God is completely unaccountable to you. Who are you? It's like Job will come to the end, you know, after Job has had all his say and he's let out all his frustrations, although he hadn't sinned, he's talked pretty harshly. And he kind of catches a glimpse there of, of who God is. And he says, oh, Lord, forgive me for bringing you into court, requiring you to give a good answer. I'm going to put my hand over my mouth now. That's what Paul's saying. It's not unlike the parable that Jesus tells in Matthew 20. It's the parable of the workers in the vineyard. Do you remember this? And he has some workers that start at the beginning of the day, and then he goes back at lunch and picks up some more workers, and then he picks up some workers at the very end of the day, and then the day's over of the work, and he goes to pay everybody, and he pays everybody the same. And the morning workers come, and they demand an answer. Wait a minute, this isn't right? We've worked all day long, and yet you paid these folks that showed up at 4 o'clock 60 minutes before the whistle went off. You paid them the same thing. To which in the parable, Jesus says, the master says, I'm, I'm sorry, who are you? This is my vineyard. You got what you bargained for. Who, what right do you have to tell me how to manage my affairs? If I so choose to pay the person at noon and the person that showed up at four, the same thing. What is it to you? It's a hard parable, but it's true. This is what Paul's saying. Now, 22, 23. I'll get through all this, but I don't miss this, okay? Are you still with me here? All right. 22, 23. Look at this. Paul's answer. So, Paul, what you're saying is, we think you're, what you're saying is this is fatalism. Paul's first answer, which is he answers the question with a question, who do you think you are? It's one. The second answer, which is also a question, notice what he says. In 22, he says this, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power? Now, now what if has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. What if God deciding to show his mercy? What, what, if, what if part of God's plan was to patiently bear with those vessels prepared for destruction now notice 23, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, 
Now notice how he says this. Which he prepared, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Here's what I want you to notice, two things. One, he's not saying this is not a definitive statement. He, he, he poses this as a question. Secondly, the end of 22 and the end of 23, I want you to notice the difference. This is significant. And Paul, I think, is so careful in how he's saying what he's saying. The end of 22. He's endured with much patience, vessels of wrath, prepared for destruction. The end of 23, what does he say? Vessels of mercy that he has prepared beforehand for mercy. In 23, God ascribes to the vessels prepared for mercy, or Paul does, as the work of God. He has prepared beforehand. There is not that statement about those prepared for destruction. They have just prepared for destruction. How they prepare for destruction? Well, very likely they're preparing themselves. They are going the way they are going. They are choosing the things they desire to choose, preparing for themselves the destruction, the wrath that awaits. And God patiently bears with them. I do not think, I think Paul is very clear. He is not answering the question of fatalism or its weaker cousin determinism with a double predestination. He is not saying God has called and elected and, 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 and uh, uh, foreknown and predestined and called and justified and glorified, like he said at the end of Romans 8. He has not done all of that. I mean, he's done all of that for those to whom will be conformed to the likeness of his son. Paul does not say. He has elected, foreknown, predestined, called to spend eternity in hell. Now, I know you, you're smart, and you're going to say, Ross, maybe Paul doesn't say that. Maybe he's careful not to say that. But it doesn't take a PhD in philosophy to logically deduce If there is one, there must be the other. To which I would say, let me say this. You are called to believe what God has revealed and no more. You are not called to believe what your logic can deduce. That which has remained unrevealed. If God has chosen to not reveal this, and I think carefully Paul in his language is not saying this, 
then it is not your logic which you are called to believe. You know what you're called to believe? That this remains unrevealed. That this, this is the mystery of God to which you don't have enough finite logic to get to the bottom of. We believe and affirm what it is that God has said about election, not what is left unrevealed about it. This is where we hang off the edge of the cliff, stare down into the abyss of the mercy of God as we hang by the rope of His grace. You know what Paul's arguing here? He's arguing for the mercy of God in your life. He wants you to receive this mercy that he's poured out on you through his son, Jesus. Paul begins by saying, I'd give myself, I would sacrifice myself if you could know this. He'll begin Romans 10 by saying, I want nothing more than you to know this. You're not saying who's in or out. Let me, tell you, let me tell you a category, a person that does not exist. There's not a person that exists. This category does not exist. The person who says, I really want to get to heaven, but I'm not elect, so I can't get there. That person doesn't exist. At the same time, Spurgeon said, listen, if God painted a white stripe on the back of every person that was elect, I would walk through the streets of London pulling up shirt tails. But he hasn't. You don't know. I don't know. That's left in the abyss of God's mercy. That is mystery to which we are not given view. That's what I would say. So then he argues again. He's going to say, hey, listen, I'm going to argue from Hosea and Isaiah, a prophet to the north and a prophet to the south. The destruction of Assyria, the destruction of, of Babylon. I always said there was going to be a remnant. There are some that were going to perish. I have always kept a remnant out for myself. I have always secured a, a, a remnant of those that are part of God's chosen people through whom the Messiah would come. God's word has not failed. It has been fulfilled through his promise. And this remnant actually included more than those from the north and more than those from the south. You know what it also included? God has exceeded our expectations and included the Gentiles as well. Those who are not my people are going to be called my people. So what do we do with this? All right. I'm now into minus one minute, all right? So, but I, practically, just give me one minute. I'll tell you practically what do we do. First thing it does is it's designed to prostrate our souls, to remind us again and again and again that when we come to the kingdom of God, it's not because we so diligently worked hard or that we looked the best or we were the tallest or we were, we didn't do that. you trust in Christ this morning God's loved you from before the foundation of time see when I became a Christian I probably told you this 
young age, my experience was this. I, 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 my experience was I, I made a choice. I said yes to Jesus. God, I, I choose your team. That's what I experienced. Looking back, here's what I realized. God, God was so working me. He was drawing me to his son. There was this pre-work of the Holy Spirit in my life bringing me to a place of choosing. I was responding to God's love. And maybe God's doing that in you this morning, working in you, not letting you go, causing you to wrestle with things that, that unsettle you because he wants you to know his love for you. Paul doesn't preach this to unbelievers, nor should we. The message to everyone, God commands everyone to repent. All men everywhere, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's the gospel. That's what Paul preached. It reminds us of God's work in the midst of it. It should rejoice, it should prostrate ourselves. We should be humbled, absolutely humbled. We should rejoice with our hearts. He did not give, God does not reveal this doctrine so that we would have more to fight about in church. I promise we'd have taken care of that all by ourselves. He's given it because this, if we glimpse this, if we hang over the cliff with, with everything that's thrilling and exhilarating and, 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 and gaze into his mercy, oh, it's meant to heighten our love for the God who saved us. It is meant to ease your worries. You don't have to figure it all out. You don't have to know everything. You don't have to be settled with all of this. It's okay. God is sovereign, infinite. We just have finite little minds gazing at all his majesty. And finally, I would say, and hear me, it stimulates us to evangelism. Somehow people say, well, when you talk about sovereignty, when you talk about election, then you say, well, there's no need for evangelism. And I'd say, no, that's exactly the opposite. It gives us all the confidence in the world to go and to share the gospel with every single person that we would encounter. In fact, chapter 10 is going to bid us to go and do that. Paul will say, I endure all things for the sake of the elect. The Paul it's point is, listen, when I go out, when I tell the gospel, when I'm on the bus or the plane or the, at the diner with somebody and I strike up a conversation about the gospel, it's not up to me to sell Jesus to them. I don't have to do that. I make plain who he is, knowing that God superintends all that is spoken about his son, drawing people to him. So we know from the beginning, some come, some won't. Pressure's off of me, but God's going to do things I never imagined. And there may be someone that resists their entire life and come to the end of their days and go, oh, oh, now I see 
not for us to count who is or who isn't. It's for us to pray and speak plainly with, with all the love of God and mercy that he offers. I'll close with one Spurgeon quote in case I haven't lost you and completely ticked you off yet. Here we go. Spurgeon says this. If sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped around their knees, imploring them to stay. And if hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions. And let no one go unwarned or unprayed for. Who are you praying for? Who's on your list? Who needs to hear the gospel come out of your life and your mouth? If you would, would you bow with me and let's pray. Father, I pray you would do what only you can do, and that is to take things that are hard and mysterious and unsettling Romans 9 is kind of like the, the burning bush in front of Moses that, that, that frightens us. I know it is for me. And Father, I pray we'd hear you call out of it with your grace and your mercy. That's what you intend us to hear, how you have loved us, how you have sought us and wooed us and drawn us to your son Jesus and that you call all men and women to your son you desire that all would come to know him that all would believe and so father without distinction without prejudice without any predetermination on our part, we, Father, I pray we'd be faithful to share the gospel anywhere and everywhere, trusting that you, by your Spirit, are working the supernatural, born-again birth of those to whom we speak about your Son. So, Father, that's how we pray, the only way we can. In the name of your Son, Jesus, who is seated at your right hand and by your Spirit, the power of your Spirit that indwells us.